Welcome back to another episode of The Dead and the Deadlier. I'm Vista. This episode is going to be a little different compared to the past ones. With the school year coming to an end and your beloved hosts graduating to move on to bigger and better events, we wanted our last podcast to be special. As a result, we chose a case closer to home, a case that has gone unsolved for 83 years, which leads us to talking about Ohio's very own Cleveland Torso Killer, or the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. Because we are close by, we are on our way to the sites where the bodies were found to be able to get a better understanding of what happened 83 years ago. We are also extremely excited to have our first and last special guest joining us, the author of In the Wake of the Butcher, Dr. James Bedell. In 1936, the Great Depression was the country's main concern, but for Cleveland, Ohio, that wasn't the only thing troubling the city. Then, the sixth biggest city in the United States, Cleveland had sold itself as the city of conventions, welcoming travelers to downtown through its new Union train station, with a variety of fancy hotels nearby and a state-of-the-art public auditorium. For the second time in a dozen years, the city hosted the Republican National Convention, but the big event in Ohio that summer was the Great Lakes Expedition, celebrating Cleveland's centennial. Unknown to the city, that year would also spotlight the handiwork of a serial killer who had been stalking the city for nearly a year. The killer became known as the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, since most of the bodies were found in that area. Kingsbury Run is a prehistoric riverbed running from the flats to about East 90th Street. The train and rapid transit tracks still run through the run. Bordered on the north by Woodland Avenue and on the south by Broadway Avenue, Kingsbury Run was a dark, dreary, and dangerous place in the 1930s. This dispossessed of the Great Depression lived in appalling conditions. Trash and filth dominated the makeshift hobo jungle that occupied much of the run. These people, most of them transients, often rode the rails to escape the brutal Cleveland winters or simply to keep moving. The area just to the east of the run was known as the Roaring Third, homes to bars, brothels, flop houses, and gambling dens. In this grim setting, the most notorious murder case in Cleveland's history will begin to unfold. Described by Cleveland's news reporter, Frank Otwell, as an unwholesome cooked gash that meanders carelessly through Cleveland's Lower East Side, the crime terminated investigators, including Elliot Ness, one of the era's most celebrated lawmen. When Elliot Ness arrived in Cleveland, he was known as the one of the Treasury agents who helped enforce prohibition laws and was involved in the case with gangsters in Chicago, including Al Capone. Because of his untouchable reputation, Nest was named Public Safety Director for the city the following year. His mission was to professionalize and strengthen a police department that had become corrupt, a lazy unit of political patronage. By the time Nest took office, the bad butcher had already claimed four victims. During the investigation, Elliot Nest would order the shantytown, where most of the bodies were either found or originated, to be burned down. This would help the killing stop but would also cause Ness's career to end in ruin. In September 1934, a young man found the lower half of a woman's torso, thighs still attached but amputated at the knees, washed up at the shore of Lake Erie just east of Brehenel. Cuyahoga County Coroner A.J. Pierce noted some sort of chemical preservative on the skin which had turned it red, tough, and leathery. The subsequent search yielded only a few other body parts, The body was that of a female in her mid-30s. The head was never found and the woman was never identified. 
She is also referred to as the Lady of the Lake. It wasn't until two years later that this would be included in the official killing total and thus became known as victim number zero. It would be another year before the case became official at the new... <laughs> in September 1935, two teenage boys discovered the decapitated corpse of a white male at the base of Jackson Hill where East 49th Street dead ends in the Kingsbury Run. The body, naked except for a pair of socks, was drained of blood. There were rope burns around both wrists. Coroner Pierce determined the cause of death had been decapitation. Fingerprints identified the victim as Edward Andrasi, a 28-year-old white male. Andrasi had an arrest record, was rumored to be homosexual, and frequented the Roaring Third. Police discovered a second body nearby, also decapitated. It appeared to be covered with the same chemical preservative as the Lady of the Lake. This body apparently had been dead for at least a couple weeks. The 40-year-old man was never identified. In January 1936, a woman discovered about half the body of a female neatly wrapped in newspaper and packed in two half-bushel baskets. The baskets were left alongside the Hart Manufacturing Building on Central Avenue near East 20th Street. Everything except the head was recovered about 10 days later in a vacant lot near Orange Avenue. As in the case of Edward and Rossi, the cause of death had been decapitation. For some reason, however, the killer had waited for rigor mortis to set in before disarticulating the rest of the body. Fingerprints, again, would allow the identification of one Florence Pilillo, waitress, bartender, and prostitute. At the time of her death, she resided on East 32nd Street in Carnegie, right on the edge of the Warring Third. In June of 1939, early one morning, two boys skipped school to go fishing. The two young boys discovered the head of a white male wrapped in a pair of trousers close to the East 55th Street Bridge. Police found the body of the man the next day dumped in front of the Nickel Plate Railroad Police Building. Clean and drained of blood, the corpse was intact except for the head. Pierce again determined the death had been caused by decapitation. In spite of a fresh set of fingerprints and the presence of six distinctive tattoos on various parts of the body, the police was never able to identify the victim. A plaster reproduction of the man's head, along with a diagram of the kind and location of the tattoos, were made to display at the Great Lake Expedition of 1936. No one was able to identify the body and... The man would be known as the Tattooed Man. Um, do you think the Tattooed Man was a tourist just visiting the city? And do you think this could explain why no one regularly recognized him? No. Uh, I don't think there were many tourists in Cleveland in those years. Uh, the fact that nobody recognized him, and the fact that nobody could identify the tattoos, the police sent copies of those tattoos all over the country. Hmm. Uh, transit, railroad rider. Yeah, because uh, there was a bunch of railroads that's right. through. Uh, the assumption is that most of the victims were. Yeah. yeah. Off and on, going through town. Again, you have to know the geography of the area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, look at the maps in the back of in the wake of the butcher. 
Uh, Kingsbury Run is where the rapid transit tracks and train tracks were. Uh, back in the 30s, there were six hobo jungles mm. in uh, Kingsbury Run. And uh, we, and again, Kings, that particular part of Kingsbury Run was close to the seedier sides of the city. Mm. Now, for example, I was contacted by a man years ago who was present when the second set of Flopalillo's remains were found. Uh, and he said he delivered papers in the shanty towns. And I said, what? I said, I thought you were lived in Shantytown, you were above. Yeah. And he said, a lot of these people had jobs, they just couldn't afford to live anywhere else. And what we call today the working poor. Mm -hmm. And one of his other memories of the area was on Cardake, one of the main streets in Cleveland. One day a week, the chicken farmers would come in from out of town mm -hmm. and sell chickens off the street. Mm -hmm. And if you bought a chicken, they would always say to you, do you want it alive or dead? And if you said dead, they whacked its head off and held it by the feet so the blood could drain into the street. And he said, he remembers this clearly, the smell of the blood. And if a chicken died on the way, they threw it in one of the alleys. Because it wasn't fresh. And people who lived in the shantytowns didn't care. So they would, he said the one smell you always had was cooking chicken. And, of course, that neighborhood is nowhere near what, what it was yeah. then, the way it is now. Uh, but he saw the police, and he went to the gas station, and what's going on? They said, well, they found body parts, go take a look. And one of the policemen came up to him and said, do you find, do you see anyone strange around here? And he said, man, there's a cat house over there, everybody's strange. Uh, <laughs> But he was there when they picked up the second set of four-wheeled remains. He remembers a man, cop, standing there kicking at part of her body because it was close to the ground. the person had to have had to have just done this is yeah so bad oh Whack. well the original edition of Busher was published in 2001 mm -hmm. and even at that point I had access to all sorts of information that nobody had seen mm -hmm. uh, I was I got in touch with Peter Merlo's daughter remember him mm -hmm. lead investigator of the case yep she had all his case records. That was allowed? Hmm? That was allowed? That didn't have to like stay at the police station or anything? Oh, one would think. Apparently things were very slack in those days. That's huh. fair. Yeah. It was common practice for you to take the case files home records of files, things you worked on. Mm -hmm. And I was all prepared. I said, can we duplicate them? Yes. And we were all prepared to go down and we found somebody. Or Xerox machine. Mm -hmm. 
I called her to tell her what would be coming. She said it was all done. And she'd done it at one of her daughter's offices. <coughs> it taken her all day, eight hours. Hmm. And I always say whenever I talk about this, whenever I give a talk, that that year this was Cape and Bay. Santa Claus wore a FedEx uniform because it was really a stack like that, a couple thousand pages. Uh, and he talked about having been steered to Francis Sweeney. He interrogated him. Oh yeah, I would too. But uh, he dismissed him because he was convinced that those Pennsylvania killings were related. Oh yeah. Yeah. And by the time he saw him, Francis was pretty. Yeah. And he says, this guy doesn't have the wherewithal to ride the rails to kill people. Mm. Uh, I'd been asked, do we think we need an updated version? Do we need an updated version? Uh, I'm on the board of trustees of the People Police Historical Society. Mm. And whenever <coughs> an officer died, uh, sometimes his stuff would be sent to the museum, and so I'd yeah. get first look at it. And bits and pieces of the investigation were coming in all the time, but nothing to write a whole new book on. Mm -hmm. uh, that did not happen until you know, 2012, 2013, because the second edition of Busher was published in 14. <coughs> but that, by them, uh, Francis Sweeney had probably done his work where he was hanging out. In July of 1936, a teenage girl came across the decapitated remains of a 40-year-old white male while walking through the woods near Clinton Road and Big Creek on the west side. The victim had been dead for about two months and his head, as well as a pile of bloody clothes, was found nearby. Judging by the enormous quantity of blood that had seeped into the ground, this man had apparently been killed where his body was found. Do you think the killer was getting more confident by killing the victim where it was found? That was the one that was found in the woods. That was number five. Yeah. You might have to take up on that. Uh, this is a good question. Uh, that particular body site or crime scene was fairly close to one of the offices that the perpetrator, my co-workers and I have identified. Mm. So not necessarily. Not necessarily, all right. It was a pretty remote area, still is. Yeah. But I was mainly thinking of the question as like, he had killed the body there and left the body there. Like there was no second location. Uh, number five was killed before number four was found. Four was June? Yeah, June. Uh, so I don't think it shows any daring on his part. In September of 1936, a transient tripped over the upper half of a man's torso while trying to hop a train on East 37th Street in Kingsbury Run. Police searched a nearby pole, which was nothing more than a big open sewer, and found the lower half of the torso and part of both legs. 
police sent a diver in to make the discovery. The number of onlookers that turned out to watch the grim spectacle was estimated at over 600, and the killer may well have been among them. Victim number six was in his late 20s, and the cause of death, yet again, was decapitation. Coroner Pierce noted that the lack of hesitation marks and the disarticulation of the body indicated a strong, confident killer, very familiar with the human anatomy. The head had been cut off with one bold, clean stroke. The victim died instantly. Identification was never made. Six brutal killings in one year, and the police had neither clues nor suspects. The Cleveland Press and the Cleveland News and the Cleveland Plain Dealer all reported almost daily on the killings and the lack of a suspect. Tension was high. Who was the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run? Giving in to mounting pressure from Mayor Harold Burton, Safety Director Elliot Ness started to get more involved in the case. Coroner Pierce calls for what the newspaper dubs a torso clinic, a meeting of police, the coroner, and other experts to discuss information and to profile someone who could be responsible for these gruesome killings. The police department put detectives Peter Marillo and Martin Zelareski on the case full-time. By the time the case had run its course, the two had interviewed more than 1,500 people. The department as a whole, more than 5,000. This would be the biggest police investigation in Cleveland history. The killer was known as the Mad Butcher, but the killings themselves drove Ness mad. Two more bodies officially, the 11th and 12th victims, were discovered on August 16, 1938, in a spot on the lakefront that could be seen from Ness's office. Two days later, Cleveland police swept through Kingsbury Run, making dozens of arrests and burning down the shantytowns. Ness was criticized severely for his actions, but the killings would be stopped. In late 1938, the Cleveland police received a letter perpetrated from the killer. You can rest easy now, it read. I have come out to sunny California for the winter. The killer claimed to have killed someone and buried the body on Century Boulevard between Crenshaw and Western in Los Angeles. The body was never found. Ultimately, the only person ever arrested for the Torso murders was Frank Dolezal, a bricklayer who lived with Florence Palillo, the third victim, and knew Adrasi and Ross Rose. Did Francis Sweeney, like, ever have, like, a valid alibi for where he was and what he was doing? No. No? Uh-huh. Hmm. Well, he, he, the only time he would have had the chance to do so was during the secret interrogation. Mm-hmm. And we have no idea what kind of questions were asked. Would you think having him like cooped up in a room for that long it would have like messed with his brain where he kind of like his memory his brain could have got Yeah. Yeah. Uh, have you seen any of his writings? I don't uh, think I remember so. seeing like a few of the postcards. It was oh. like tauntings to the police. Yeah. yeah. Well, these were sent directly to Elliot Ness. Mm-hmm. Uh, my uncle was a psychiatrist and I had a couple of letters that Sweeney had written. And I said, what in the hell am I dealing with? And of course, he didn't want to speculate about somebody he couldn't put on the couch. Mm-hmm. 
but I'm his nephew and he liked me, so what the hell. <laughs> yeah. uh, he said paranoid schizophrenia. Oh. And I said, the man went to medical school, was a doctor, and I always thought schizophrenia manifested itself in your teen years. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, usually it does, but coming later in life is not unusual. Hmm. Uh, or is not terribly unusual. And he's also a drug addict. Oh. Yeah, the birds expect to be fed around here. <laughs> uh, drug addict, alcoholic. And my uncle said he probably experienced the onset of schizophrenia the way you and I would experience the onset of a cold or the flu. Oh. You know something's wrong, but you're just not yeah, quite sure, sure yet. Okay. And then he probably tried to control the symptoms with booze and gotcha. drugs. Yeah. Uh, and he could write prescriptions and take them himself, which oh, yeah. he did. Um, turns out both those problems are family problems. Hmm. I have talked to... I'm going to protect their identities. I talked to his niece, okay. who remembered him uh, when she was a child. I've talked to her children, and I knew more about the family background than they did. And as I w all they knew about Great Uncle Frank was that he started off as a successful doctor, and then went downhill. You know, that's all they knew. Uh, and when I began filling in some of the details, they just kept nodding, saying, this explains so much. Kept to himself. Problems of alcoholism run in the family. Yeah. Huh. Let me put it to you this way. Go ahead. Everything we've ever found out about him points to him. Yes. Nothing is ever pointed away. I was reading up on an article. It said that they never had enough evidence against him to actually put him to trial. They had enough what? Never had enough evidence against him to bring him to trial? No. All they had was the lie detector test. Oh, yeah. Really? And those are inadmissible today. You can imagine what they were back then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, think about the lie detector test for a moment. You talk about something done in secret. Mm -hmm. I mean, they picked this guy off, 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 picked him up off the streets. He was drunk. Mm -hmm. They took him to what is now the Renaissance Hotel. And Ness apparently had a room probably down a quarter, which was barely traffic and one wonders if he had similar rooms in other hotels uh, then he called in a, a marker from his Chicago days and Leonard Keeler the man who invented the modern day phonograph came to Cleveland in secret and delivered the lie detector test and then, as I say in my book uh, this was according to somebody who was there that's your man. I might as well throw my machine out the window if I say anything else. Yeah. Oh, so it probably didn't go well. Yeah. Huh. And he behaved like he behaved like a serial killer injecting himself into the investigation. Mm -hmm. oh. Now all the postcards you're talking about came when he was incarcerated for. Oh yeah. But before that, at one point. 
he sent Elliot Ness a postcard. They didn't know it had come from him at that point. But he had sent Elliot Ness a postcard with a picture of a tree on it. They'd written by the tree, dig here. Oh. So quite a sense of humor to boot. Mm-hmm. Well, you get that if you read the postcards. Yeah. Huh. He's a messed up guy. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, when he refers to himself in one of the cards as Francis E. Sweeney, M.D. M.D. Like a medical doctor? Yeah. Understand that also is mental defective. Okay. Yeah. Also understand what he probably means when he wrote on the one card, Good Cheer, the American Sweeney. Mm. We assume that's a backhanded reference to the English mass murderer, Sweeney Todd, oh. the demon barber of Fleet Street, yeah. who used to send people tumbling down into his basement and cut them up with them into meat pies. <laughs> the man was not stupid. Yeah. No. He had huh. some. He had some. He just had. Yeah. His background knowledge. It's just that his mentality just kind of went in the ground. Yeah. 1934. Abel Froelich is walking up Broadway. Here. Cold and shivering, probably drunk out of his mind. Uh, and he said later. I suddenly found myself on the second floor of a doctor's office. Oh. <laughs> and the doctor was very affable and said, Would you like some food? Oh, yeah. And said, Well, he really wants a pair of shoes, but food would be great. And as he was eating the food, he began to feel woozy. Mm, like so, my God, I've been drugged. And so he jumped up and ran out with the doctor chasing him. Oh. Uh-oh. Went down into Kingsbury Run and hit out the derelict boxcar. It slept for three days. Mm. So you can imagine what kind of shape he was in when he woke up. Definitely. Uh, he decided Cleveland was not for him, so he went to Chicago. <laughs> and somehow his story got back to Cleveland. Yeah. So a couple of years later, Merlot and somebody, I forgot what the other cop was, they actually went to Chicago and brought him back to Cleveland. And they walked him up and down Broadway because he kept saying the doctor's office was on the north side of the street. Well, the north side of the street were all stores and residences. I think what happened was right beside that house was a deli called Broadway Lunches. And I'll bet you dollars to donuts, he went behind to go through the trash to see if there was any food, mm-hmm. and then wound up in the back door of the house where the medical practice so. was. The killer was known as the Mad Butcher, but the killings themselves drove Ness mad. Two more bodies, officially the 11th and 12th victims, were discovered on August 16, 1938, in a spot on the lakefront that can be seen from Ness's office. Two days later, Cleveland police swept through Kingsbury Run, making dozens of arrests and burning down the shanty towns. Ness was criticized severely for his actions, but the killings would be stopped. In late 1938, the Cleveland police received a letter from the killer. You can rest easy now, it read. I have come out to sunny California for the winter. 
The killer claimed to have killed someone and buried their body on Century Boulevard between Crenshaw and Western in Los Angeles. The body was never found. Ultimately, the one person ever arrested for the Terrestrial murders was Frank Dolezal, a bricklayer who lived with Florence Palillo, the third victim, and knew Adrasi and Rose Wallace, the only other victim who was ever identified. Dolezal confessed to killing Palillo, but later recanted. He died in custody, officially a suicide, but his death remains suspicious. In 1947, the same year Ness unsuccessfully ran for mayor in Cleveland, a woman, later identified as Elizabeth Short, was found murdered in a park in Los Angeles. Short was cut in half, her intestines were removed, and she was drained of blood. All similar trademarks to the Torso murders, except that she was tortured, and the Cleveland Torso murderer wasn't known for torturing his victims. She became known as the Black Dahlia, and her murder, as one more thing in common with the torso murders, it remains unsolved. Right, our next question is, you brought up a theory in another interview on how Frank Dolezal's death could be considered the 13th killing of the torso killer. We kind Why? of looked up some interviews. Yeah. Why would you think that? Yeah. Because Cleveland was so desperate for an answer. Mm -hmm. There was political rivalry between the... Republican administration and the Democratic Sheriff's Office. Uh, Dolezal looked like a reasonable candidate for a while. Uh, he lived in the same area. Uh, he apparently was a mean drunk. He had lived with Flo Palillo for a while, apparently. Uh, and he drank at a spot at 22nd and Central, I think, or 20th and Central. Of course, it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, where a lot of the victims, at least those they could identify, have been traced to. He even admitted to killing Flo, right? Did you read my book? A little bit. <laughs> uh, he confessed. And the lead investigator for the police department said this is the first time anyone has ever confessed to any crime, especially a murder, and doesn't know the details of the crime he's confessing to. Mm. So he offered a second confession. A little bit better, but still pretty. Yeah. And when that didn't hold up, he offered a third. Uh, he was found hanging in his cell. And I convinced he was murdered by people in the sheriff's department mm. because they knew the moment he went on trial, the case would fall apart completely. And so they wanted to make it look like he didn't want to face the justice system, so he hung himself. Pretty good picture. The Black Dahlia case would line up with the letters sent to the police about the torso murderer moving to California. The LAPD believed that George Hodel killed the Black Dahlia. Hodel was a rich doctor with a lot of experience under his belt. Hodel's son, Steve Hodel, would suspect his own father and use that drive to become the lead detective on the case. But ultimately, the case of the Black Dahlia remains unsolved. I've been in that many times. Do you believe um, the Black Dahlia case is connected? Okay. That's very fair. It was, it was worth a shot to ask. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Look at the methodology. Mm-hmm. She's been tortured. Yeah. And she'd also been mutilated. Yeah. yeah. Her mouth had been cut like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had not been decapitated. Yeah. And that was his signature. He always decapitated. Occasionally, that's all he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting to note that most of the women were cut up in smaller pieces. Yeah. And then weren't. Huh. You think he just didn't like women? Had something in the past with his mom or something? Uh, well, his wife took him to court and sued him for divorce in 1936. Oh. Or is it 34? Again, it's in the book. Yes. Because uh, she said he's lost all interest in his practice. He disappears mm. days at a time. We don't know where he is. He's abusive to me and the two children. That could have been like the snapping point. Broke and broken. Elliot Ness died at the age of 54 in 1957. The man who was once the nation's top prohibition agent now had a serious drinking problem of his own. Six months after his death, his memoir, The Untouchables, was published and became the basis for a television show a year later. Ness has remained a pop culture icon ever since. Forty years after his death, Elliot Ness was given a funeral with full police honors in Cleveland, and his ashes were scattered at Lakeview Cemetery on the city's east side, not far from Kingsbury Run, where the mad butcher left a trail of body parts. And that wraps up our last episode of The Dead and the Deadlier. I would like to thank, sorry, I would like to thank uh, my forensics teacher, who had us start this project in the first place. It it started out as like a funny little assignment that turned into something that I really enjoyed. And I don't know, I might keep it up. Um, I would also like to shout out my teacher's podcast, Monsters Among Us on Spotify. She has been doing a wonderful job. She has gotten out of her comfort zone and... I don't know how much to thank her for this project. So, uh, thank you, Mrs. Z. One last thing. Keep an eye out for the deadly. You don't know where they would be.